This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I just wanted to say a few things. Um, certainly for me, this has been an amazing afternoon. Um, and I really want to thank all the speakers for brilliant talks, uh, most of which I could understand. Um, you know, we've heard about brain circuits, how experience can change these circuits, leading to changes in behavior, both during normal development um, and also when development goes awry. And we heard a number of themes that weave through the talks, that have been weaving through the talks, including sensitive periods, critical periods. We've heard something about speech and language, uh, stress, parenting, uh, abnormal experience, the teen brain, which is, uh, we've learned, not like any other brain. Um, autism, schizophrenia, adaptation, genes. Um, I thought it was really interesting that Matt State said that genes are not fate, which is, uh, and we've learned something about that. The idea that you could come and take advantage of the inherent plasticity that remains in the brain, even sometimes in diseased brains, and engage that for treatment or, uh, you know, for uh, therapy in a way. And uh, we actually uh, heard that from April uh, in terms of being able to maybe even predict and maybe even intervene in, in, uh, uh, in behaviors that have to do with learning and uh, audition and language. Um, but I think it, Terry, in a way, already summarized what's left of the big, you know, big challenges. Basically, we don't know anything. It's really fantastic time to be a neuroscientist and to be a clinical neuroscientist. There are so many challenges that remain. There are lots of tools that are being built. And I think, you know, even today, what you heard from all of us as we spoke is that there's this enormous gap in the scales of knowledge between. Um, you know, what we know about the human brain, both in health and disease, and the fact that we see that human brain on a scale that in many ways can give us hints, but not really can't tell us much about mechanism. And on the other side of the coin, we, we see the mouse brain or animal models, um, and we see them, that those brains at the level of molecules, and the challenge is really to get to the point where we can bridge these gaps in scale. And my dream, actually, would be not just to understand and see the neurons all active in these circuits, as we saw in the science fiction pictures that uh, Terry showed us of the human brain and also the real pictures of the zebrafish brain, but the challenge would be that we actually get to see all the synapses and what they're doing because that's where a lot of the action is happening. And that's another order of magnitude, if you remember, in Terry's uh, list uh, from molecules to circuits and behavior. So I think with that, it's time to uh, have some questions and hopefully some answers. So uh, Terry, why don't you come and start with the first sets of questions? Okay. So we got some really good questions, and I'm going to start out with one for April, so you should queue up here. So, dear April. <laughs> okay. There are individuals with great intelligence who may not be so acoustically sensitive, like deaf people. Right. So are there other s stimuli that may be critical for development of 
understanding language. and language? Well, that's an excellent question. And um, of course, we know that you don't need um, audition to develop language per se. Um, and I'm using that as a way to get into language. But we were just talking about um, different sorts of mechanism. I'm, act I'm actually a, um, uh, on a dissertation committee for, for a young man at Gallaudet who's studying um, basically the timing of these uh, sign language and how it develops across time. And um, I'm very interested in how... I'm really more interested in timing, as, as Terry was just talking about, and how the inputs have to come in in a particular order in order to engage the areas of the brain that are going to be developing language. And we know from the research in, um, in the deaf uh, world that um, it doesn't need to be a, a auditory input. Um, there's also the idea that there can be a lot of coordination among the senses as the, as the child is developing. Um, if they're hearing and um, they have their other senses, we were just talking about how do you look at how input into one sense affects all of the other connections in the brain because we know that language is um, extremely um, connected and that uh, all of these different uh, if you look at what's happening in people who are deprived of one sense, you see taking over another part of the another part of the brain. It'll repurpose it, but there's also this coordination that happens, and we're very interested in looking at how that happens. So great, thank you. So uh, the next question is for Catherine Dulac. Does your work relate to changes? from homicidal genocidal behavior in people who have lived previously at peace? Uh, so um, I'm not really sure how this applies to humans, but um, I, I think uh, I genocide or aggression in general are... Um, uh, different circuit, I think, and um, uh, in, in work that I have not had time to, uh, to discuss and that I will discuss, I think, in a private session tomorrow, we actually have found a set of neurons that are responsible, or at least involved, in uh, infant-mediated aggression, so the type of infanticidal behavior that you've seen in mice. Interestingly, these neurons are present both in males and females, and um, in males, these neurons are active in virgin males and then become silent. And in females, these neurons are related to the stress pathway, which is very interesting because we know that stressed animals, stressed females, tend to uh, curl their, 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 their pups. So it's very well known that females in, in nature, when there's, there's too many, there are too many predators or there are not enough food, will kill their infants uh, because basically they don't want to spend resources on nurturing infants that have no chance to grow up. Now, let me get back to uh, humans. There is no infanticidal behavior uh, in, in the same way as in this species. I think part of it, evolutionarily speaking, as I mentioned, there's not the competition happening between a dominant male and all sort of subordinate male that doesn't give access to subordinate male. In monogamous species, the male and the female are together 
um, and and both taking care of infants. So there is no need for this um, aggression. And in 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 essence, you can uh, understand monogamy as being the evolutionary response to infanticide. So one way to escape infanticide, which is an enormous waste of resources, is actually uh, for a couple to stay together and both uh, nurturing infants. Now, what, what is quite interesting, though, is that there are um, two, uh, two types of infanticide that are observed in humans. Uh, one is related to uh, mental illness, and I mentioned postpartum um, uh, psychosis. Um, uh, that's one of them, and it's extremely rare. And the other one is a cultural infanticide. It has been the case in many, many cultures, including uh, European culture, Asian culture, African culture, that um, uh, infants were killed um, for one reason or the other. And there are even a, a book that an undergraduate student mentioned to me uh, that described uh, infanticide that was systematically practiced uh, in the northern of Japan from, I think, the 16th century till 1950. And that was just done very systematically as soon as infants, as soon as a family had more than two children. And it was done in this entire part of Japan, and it was very well uh, recorded by the bureaucrat, etc. And, and, then, and then it disappeared. But this clearly has nothing to do with aggression. Now, uh, relate to genocide or aggression in general, the neurons that we found that seem to be involved in pub-mediated aggression are actually not activated during other types of aggression. So male-male aggression or maternal aggression, these texts uh, are handled by other type of neuronal circuit. So I hope I answered the question. Very nice. Very nice. Okay. BJ Casey, this is your question. If you, if you choose to take it. <laughs> Does prenatal maternal stress affect the developing fetal brain? So I think in my presentation, I was a postnatal chauvinist and focused only on changes during that time. Um, but we know that earlier uh, in development, there are a number of um, environmental factors that can infect the, um, the fetal brain and um, and so the answer would be yes, <laughs> and um, I could expand on that more if there was a specific uh, place you wanted to go. Whoever asked that, but cortisol, cortisol, cortisol levels, in the um, in the mother, right? Stress, right. So that could have an impact too. We haven't looked at it in our in our own research. We've looked at that more at the level of the children who were stressed and the um, by growing up in the orphanage. But there are a number of factors that could impact. Now, what about drugs, alcohol? So alcohol can have drastic effects. On the, there are a number of factors that can impact the developing um, brain, particularly fetal development, which was so why it was so important for our studies. Um, when we were looking at the um, stress of the orphanage to have a model in which we could control other environmental factors and control other genetic factors that are just impossible to do in the human to sort of show the, the role of this experience. But of course, 
It's not going to be experience or genetics. We're far beyond that. It is the case that these are always interacting. Experiences can turn on and off genes in their expression, and so that's very important to keep in mind in all of this work. Okay, very Thank good. You. Okay, here's a curveball for Jay Geed. Jay, where are you? There. Okay. My husband behaves like the teenager that you describe. <laughs> this, this is a case of delayed adolescence. You need to be patient. Yes. Um, I mean, I guess fundamentally it is a question, you know, is delay bad you know, in terms of, of um, kind of, quote, late bloomers? And, and particularly in education, there's a very strong bias, earlier is better. Read early, you know, do, uh, um, the sooner you meet milestones, um, you know, the farther you'll go. And that's actually pretty weakly supported. Uh, um, there's many examples of probably in this room even as well, of kind of tortoise and hare type of phenomenon where the, the rule for child prodigies is they do okay. Um, so actually you know, looked at prodigies in the Hawkins Center for Talented Youth and you know, they're not um, jobless on the street and stuff, but, but usually people catch up. You know, There's a few uh, kind of notable examples. But I think that it's very entrenched in our... Culture, you know, the husband and side sort of to get away from this notion, you know, of earlier is always better, you know, Tiger Woods or those examples. Oh, they, you know, they did great things at very young ages. But, but there's so many exceptions to that rule of people of high achievement that weren't always meteoric. They weren't always, you know, the top of, you know, the grades all the time that, that people sometimes, uh, you know, wandered a bit before they engaged in their passion. And, um, and, uh, I, I've been surprised in terms of for looking at extremes, like how often that is the case, um, and that people tend to have strengths and weaknesses, and, and, and the, you know the environment matters a lot. But it's it's a more seriously interesting question for children of illnesses, that as long as they're improving slightly, you know, and like how long should a parent sort of be very encouraged and hang in there, even if the progress is, is slight? Um, and I think. Uh, clinically, a long time. I mean, I think that that's a good mentality to have is don't look at the calendar so much, but, you know, is your child learning? Are they still progressing? You know, are they moving toward um, independence? Um, because the, that um, sort of time of uh, no return keeps getting extended. There used to be, you know, like a child by five and they're going to be you know, a criminal or a, a, a saint or your kind of things that we keep seeing examples of there's, a, there's the plasticity in their brain. I, I should have emphasized this again. It's not enhanced during adolescence. It's just still there. You know, younger, I think, you know, it's, it's not like there's a, a surge in plasticity. And it, and it never, I think, goes away completely. But I think that for parents and for spouses uh, you know, uh, the, and, and stuff, that um, you know, to, to, to look more in terms of is progress still being maintained? Um, but it's definitely the case. Some people never grow up. You know, in terms of um, in terms of executive function and stuff, they remain impulsive. They 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 are every bit you know indistinguishable on those. And some young people are incredibly delayed gratification. You know, forward thinking, and and that's really a big part of the challenge. There's so much individual variation. Um, so for a legal system, for you know, if us to try to, to use these, these metrics, that, that um, 
I think that's part of the fun and the challenge. Like, what accounts for this huge variation, and what can we do about it? But even something as basic as puberty. So adolescence is starts in biology, starts at puberty, it, it ends in the societal, you know, independent functioning. But it's like eight to fifteen is normal. That's a bizarrely long range for something that's a big deal, you know, in your world and your environment. So I think there's, you know, there's so many. Um, so many unanswered questions about trajectories, um, but I, but I think that, that the fundamental one is that you know earlier isn't always better. So I did, I don't know it won't help the marriage very much, but the uh, <laughs> <laughs> earlier, but yeah, earlier not Okay, so this is a question for Carla. Uh, I was surprised to hear that there are these immune molecules on neurons. Does this mean? that the activation of the immune system and the rest of the body can affect the brain? Actually, I have a question for Terry, too. Well, you can look at it. Okay. Yeah, uh, so, uh, so both Beth Stevens and I talked about um, kind of new roles for molecules that were really thought to be exclusively functioning in the immune system. And I think this is going to be a major theme. And uh, <clears throat> what's really interesting is that, so this immune molecule that we study, and we study a few of them, they're all local, located at synapses, and they're made by the neurons. So the first point is just that uh, the immune system doesn't own these molecules. They have to share with the nervous system. But the second point which I think is really exciting, is that it means that the immune system and the nervous system have a common language. So the immune system and immune cells can actually interrogate the neural synapse directly because molecules that it recognizes are at the neural synapse. And I think uh, this really opens up a new world about thinking about how the nervous system and the immune system interact. And I think it's just the beginning of that world. Uh, so here's a question that doesn't have any specific person that is directed at, but maybe anybody you know, who wants to feel that could come up. What happens in the brain when the Zika virus infects it? Good question. Okay, that's, that's uh, Rusty is uh, taking the bait. Okay. <laughs> so it turns out that the Zika virus has a uh, affinity for primitive cells, so that it, it it can infect neurons, and the mechanism by which it does it we don't really understand, but it kills the cells. So it has a, a very high affinity for proliferative cells. So even it turns out in adults. And this was demonstrated in a paper recently here from some colleagues in uh, Ethos Scripps, I believe, showed that even in the adult, there are certain er cells that are still dividing, and they're vulnerable to the Zika virus as well. So that's why you see uh, these articles coming out that the, the, the virus can affect older people as well, not just the fetus. It's very interesting. Okay, so the next question has to do with... Um, Mathematics. Most mathematicians and theoretical physicists do their best work at a young age, less than 30 years. Why? I think this is a good question for Terry Sinovsky. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
It is true. <laughs> that in mathematics, that there's prodigies. And these are people who can do things that are at a very early age that you would have expected somebody with a lot more experience. Well, there's, the reason why you find that in math and music and a few other areas is that in math, you don't need a lot of experience about the real world because it's, math is its, its own world. And, and you can you know, learn the assumptions and, and the, 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 the theorems, and uh, your brain absorbs it because it's... Uh, you know, in a, in a prime state, it's uh, in some cases still in a critical period. Uh, if you, you know, we find these prodigies who are you know teenagers. However, it, the, this, the converse isn't true, which is that you, you can, even if you're old, you can make an important contribution. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, and here's why. Uh, and I, I, I once saw a film called Strangeness Minus Three, and it was about uh, the discovery of Omega Minus, which is an elementary particle which has strangeness minus three. And they were interviewing Yuval Neyman, who was one of the Nobel Prize winners, got the, you know, for being the, doing the theory. And they asked him, they said, you know, you're you know, in your late 30s uh, when you did your work. Isn't that a little bit late you know, for a theoretical physicist? And he says, no, 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 no. I attribute it to the, tra- to the traffic in London. And, and here's, here's the story. So he was a, working on general relativity in Israel and wanted to do his postdoc uh, with someone in London uh, at Imperial. But he was also an attache at the Israeli embassy, which was on the other side of the city. So he realized this wasn't going to work. He was going to be, he'd like to be able to Pop in and out, you know, on, on, you know, for, for a few hours. And if you take, if you know anything about London, right, forget it. If you have to drive across the city, so what he did instead was to go to uh, UC, which was in the same neighborhood as the embassy, but there were no general relativists there. So he said, "Well, I'll work on particle physics." You know, so he was in his th- mid thirties and starting from scratch in terms of you know a whole new area. And he had a brilliant idea. And so here's his, his theory. His theory is it's not how old you are. It's how long you've been thinking about a problem. So, you, and, and that you have 10 years to have a new idea. And it doesn't matter when you start. You know, as long as you still have the energy and the time and, and make the effort. And I have to say, I actually lived through this because Francis Crick, who I mentioned at the very beginning, um, changed careers halfway through, uh, right? He was in his... Uh, well, I'm not sure how old he was when he came. It's 1977. Could you calculate that, Rusty? <laughs> uh, so he, you know, he was probably. And I know how old he was because he was getting kicked out of Cambridge. <laughs> he was probably 65. But uh, but he wanted to uh, change to neuroscience, and he he realized that it would be difficult to do that unless he changed his environment, and. And so he had the most amazing conversations with him because he was coming at it as a neophyte, you know, as someone who doesn't know anything, and asking these great questions. And you know, and, and he would have uh, uh, he would have invite uh, eminent neuroscientists, neuroanatomists to come tell him about the visual system. And he spent a couple of days just chatting with them, and you know, he, it was clear that he was a Socratic dialogue that was going on. It was it was really a, an amazing process. And I think at the end, he knew more about the anatomy of the visual system than any living person, 
because of the fact that he was so omnivorous. He just wanted to know. He wanted to know. And uh, his, you know, he, he, got, he didn't get to the finish line. Uh, uh, he, he picked a really tough one, consciousness. Um, and there's a story there, too. <laughs> when he was young, his mother asked him, you know, young Francis, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, I want to be a scientist. And his mother said, well, what kind of scientist? Well, there's only two questions that are important enough to study. And the first one, what is life? And the second one, what is consciousness? <laughs> so he solved the first one. <laughs> and then was going on to the second one. Uh, and, uh, you know, it illustrates that it's really important to ask a good question. Okay. So we're going to turn it over now to Carla for the second part. Okay, I have a few more questions. First of all, for Matt State, actually two questions related. So come up, come up. (laughs) Um, Why does there seem to be an explosion of people with autism spectrum disorders? This is a good question, common question. The related one is, is there hope for autism to be cured by genetic intervention? I'll leave them here so you can remember. Um, thanks. So, um, uh, first question: uh, Why does there seem to be an explosion? There, there are multiple explanations for the explosion. So, uh, I think the the um, the one that accounts for the largest proportion of that has to do with the way uh, that we've had changes in diagnosing what autism is. Uh, so, we we've gone from autism, which um, uh, looks very much like the video that I showed you at the start of uh, my break, but over time, over the last forty years, um, the the spectrum has expanded considerably, and so that makes comparisons to where we were even 20 years ago quite problematic and accounts for a very large proportion of the increase. The best epidemiological studies suggest that even when you account for that, that there does appear to be some uh, true increase in the rate of autism that may be twofold, threefold, potentially even fourfold increase in risk, uh, which is small compared to what's purported to be the change, but still not at all trivial. Um, And uh, we don't fully understand that. I I would say that one of the things that we found um, in our work on de novo mutation and many other labs have found is that, in fact, the rate of new mutation increases with age, particularly in fathers. Um, and anything that increases the potential for de novo mutation would, would then also potentially increase the rate of risk for autism. We can quantify that, and it's quite small, that contribution of paternal age, but it opens up a way of thinking about studying the interaction of genetic mutation with environmental inputs that might give us more of an answer about why we're seeing increased risk. Um, so those, those would be two of the answers. And then uh, with regard to the prevalence, um, and is there a chance for autism to be cured by genetic intervention? I think the, the basis for the strategy in our laboratory was to identify genes um, as a way to understanding biology with the thought that um, if you can understand biology um, and ultimately, if you think about it broadly, um, uh, how to manipulate that biology environmentally, that that was always going to be easier than trying to change genes. So um, uh, the notion is, is that it's the first step in understanding something fundamental that then allows you to do the kinds of things that you've seen to intervene at a different level of analysis, and we've talked about that um, a bunch today. And, and, and I think it's certainly not impossible. Now we're being able to both read and write uh, the genome in ways that, you know, even a few years ago I would have told you was, you know, a long way off, and we're able to, to do that. So there are new technologies that are allowing us to manipulate the genome in ways that are, are quite surprising. 
I do think, though, that um, ultimately uh, it's more likely that these are going to lead to interventions and even potentially cures by understanding the process and targeting that in a way um, that is more tractable than trying to get in uh, very early and change uh, genetic material. Thanks, Matt. Uh, okay, this one is uh, addressed to me, but I think uh, Mark... You ought to come up there, and we should we can tackle it together. This is sort of fun. What is the potential for increasing and directing plasticity in the adult brain to permanently enhance cognitive function? So this would be the cognitive enhancement question. Take it away. Oh. <laughs> cognitive enhancers. Um, well, there already are cognitive enhancers, actually. Um, so, but I, I, it's a very difficult question to address because there are many aspects of cognition that could be targeted pharm- pharmacologically. Um, you know, one is a process of so-called memory consolidation where the synaptic modifications that are laid down through experience themselves have a short lifetime unless a process called memory consolidation comes along and submits those into place. And that's a step that we're already quite aware that we could target pharmacologically to make memories last longer. Um, I will say that, you know, we, those of us who've come through this by studying early developmental plasticity are very influenced by this critical period concept. That is that the brain is immutable, or parts of the brain anyway are immutable after a certain age. I don't think that concept is, um, I mean, I think we've challenged that concept considerably in the last few years. So my, my feeling, and I, I think Carl would agree with me, is that the plasticity is present in the adult brain. What's changed is how readily it's accessed. And I think if we have better understanding of, of how to access, gain access to the, the plasticity mechanisms, we're going to find that the brain's capable of, of remarkable plasticity. Thanks, thanks, Mark. I think that last point is probably, for me, the most uh, salient, that actually in the adult brain, some of these mechanisms that are present during development are still there, but they're kind of braked. And by figuring out how to take off the brakes might be quite a natural way. Uh, Might be dangerous also. That's the other thing we don't know. So I have one more, and it's another one for Catherine Dulac. Um, And I'm going to ask her to answer it because uh, I I wanted to ask you this question too, or I maybe have reworded it. what characteristics do you see or expect to see in these galanin neurons uh, to take in mothers, fathers with postpartum uh, depression? Or another way to put this really is, can you connect the galanin neurons in the mice to the human condition? <clears throat> so I think what is very interesting about... Um, the position of these galanin neurons, they are in this area of the brain called the hypothalamus, in this medial preoptic area. And this is an area in which a number of neurons have been identified, different type of neurons, that each control something very important, such as sleep or eating or thirst, so extremely important function. And then there's this new set of neurons that control parenting behavior. And so what we need to understand really is what regulates the function of these neurons. In particular, do they express particular type of receptors 
receptors to hormones or receptors to neuropeptides that uh, could uh, either that, that are involved in either increasing or decreasing their function. And so um, what we are doing these studies now, and if we find ways to manipulate uh, using small chemicals or neuropeptides, then this is certainly something that could be uh, used or exploited uh, in, in case of uh, postpartum depression or postpartum psychosis. Obviously, what we would like to know as well, or what we should know, try to know, is what actually is happening to these neurons in uh, human uh, conditions such as postpartum depression. Uh, obviously, it's way more difficult to do. We would, ha we would have to, to use um, uh, postmortem brains, um, but that might be possible. They are, they are brain banks, and uh, that's certainly the relationship between what's happening in human and, and mouse is very interesting. Thank you for the question. Well, thank you, everyone. Uh, Terry, yes. <laughs> You want yeah. Oh, oh, he want, Oh, I'm not sure. Is that a, is that a, okay? <laughs> uh, actually, this is uh, an experiment that was done here at UCSD at the VA, um, and it was f specifically with postpartum depression. And what they did was they brought the women in, and they sleep deprived them, so that you know they would stay up all night or part of the night, and in the morning, the depression lifted. And this, this seems bizarre because, you know, the, these de depressed, depressed states often typically last for months and months and years or forever, right? It's really a difficult problem. And, um, the, but the flip side was if they went and took a nap, even for 10 minutes, their depression would uh, recur. <laughs> so <laughs> you have to choose between sleep and depression. <laughs> but they, then uh, they did another study which was to look at in the brain imaging, and particularly uh, you know, using uh, activity-dependent uh, fMRI, and discovered that that uh, change in state ha actually tracked a particular part of the cortex called the anterior cingulate, which is part of the you know, limbic cortex. And... Interestingly, you know, it was low in women who had postpartum depression. And if, you, if they stayed up overnight, the activity would go up. And by the way, it does that in normal people, too, causing a, a form of euphoria. So it, it suggests that there's something going on there. It's a circuit problem. It's not, you know, that form of depression isn't necessarily a problem of molecules and synapses. Maybe it is. But, you know, it can be... If you can readjust the level of activity one way or another, you're, you're going to help that, that patient. Um, and, uh, you know, this is also uh, led to uh, experiments by Helen Mayberg. This is much later, where she stimulated, put a depth electrode into the anterior cingulate, and lo and behold, and these are patients that get drug, uh, you know, uh, it, they weren't able to be treated by drugs, and in some of the patients, under some circumstances, you get this very fast flip where they suddenly, things lift and, you know, things that were horrible and suicidal uh, suddenly uh, are getting more normal. So, so I think this, I think there are real, there's real hope. Uh, if we understand the circuit, we have mechanisms for going in and rebalancing it that we might be able to help some of these patients. Yeah, and th that last uh, set of studies was uh, performed on patients 
with depression, not postpartum depression. No, no, that's correct. Not, sorry, yeah, sorry. just this was going back into another interesting and and hard topic. All right. Well, I think that what I'd like to do now is um, turn the final uh, part of our day today over to. Rusty Gage, and he can make final remarks. And meanwhile, I just want to again thank all the speakers uh, for a wonderful afternoon. Thank you, Carla. Okay, so uh, my role in this is to uh, thank people. This is on behalf of Nick and myself. This is an experiment. This has been an experiment for us. This is our first uh, symposium in this series. And I, you know, we'll, we look forward to your response and determine whether or not it's been a success or not. But I think we can say that it is. Symposia Chair, you two, thanks very much for putting this together and, and helping to bring together a, a really great group of speakers on this topic. Obviously, the speakers, thanks for traveling out to this lonely place on the West Coast and the Southwest Coast during this time of the year. But it, it's great to all have you all here. And, of course, the stalwarts out there that have stuck out the whole time. I want to thank the audience very much for their attendance. Uh, um, and I want to have a special thanks to the interpreters. They, they, the ASL um, interpreters, they, they've gone, but we thank them for their help. KMB staff, in particular Ingrid, Kate, Kristen, Linda, Jesse, and Janet, who have done just an absolute terrific job of uh, putting all this organization together. So I'll give them please help me. Kent is up there and has been helping uh, throughout the time with uh, videos. Many of you have come in contact with him, but also Rich, Matt, Marsha, and Jacob have been outstanding in the filming category, so thank them as well, please. And finally, uh, you will be able to watch this again, or better yet, uh, get your colleagues, your relatives to have a look at this. Uh, take your time and see it again and get some of those pieces of the material that you didn't get before. And so try to join us next year for the next one. And, and we look forward to any suggestions of topics that we can handle. Thank you all. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.